something happened in in the midst of this culture. What you're describing, your experience, is all of a sudden now. And it's an intentional Tom, thank you so much, sir, for joining us on Faith in the Folds. It is a treat to have you have a fellow Asbury alumnus here to talk about something that's actually happening at uh, Asbury University and Asbury Seminary. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Man, that's I'm I'm excited. I'm excited. I I have mentioned this before with uh, with you and Joy Vaughn, who is currently faculty at Asbury University. I feel a special bond with the three of y'all because we all defended our dissertations uh, right at the very beginning of COVID, March 2020. In the as the spring. world was ending. As, as the world was ending. As like nobody really knew what exactly was going to happen, how we were going to make this work. Um, but yeah. in the same week, like all three of us in the same week, Keener came back, Craig Keener, he was back yeah. in uh, in Wilmore for for just that week. Because he had we, been, he was teaching we, at like TEDS, right, or somewhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, he's teaching at We were actually the only ones on campus at the time. We, we had were. gotten a sp special dispensation to do our our dissertation defenses because the yeah. the world had shut down. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. We um, I I was obviously bummed for a lot of reasons because you know people were actually getting sick. You know, people were actually yeah. the things yeah. were actually concerning. But I had a whole week planned with uh, Mike Lacona, my external mm -hmm. examiner. He was going to come and do a lot of fun things. And then, yeah, we couldn't have him. But anyway, anyway, yeah. I was actually able to be in the room. I was be able to be in the room, at least with Keener and Witherington. And that was that was a big deal, especially considering when everybody else was gone. Campus was a ghost town. Yeah, I had um, I had Craig in the room with me, um, Dr. My, my reader, Dr. Sue Russell was, um, was not just because of, um, some health stuff, mm -hmm. but, uh, and then obviously Scott McKnight decided to not, uh, to not make the drive or he the didn't trip want to from fly? Chicago. No, not, <laughs> not in the middle of COVID. So yeah, no, I understand it. <laughs> I understand it. L lots yeah. of grace for you, Scott, if you're watching this. <laughs> Let him know. I, uh, I ran into him at, uh, at SBL. I walked past, uh, we were at an IBR session. Uh, back in November, and I saw him sitting next to to Ben Witherington. And so I greeted mm -hmm. greeted Dr. Witherington, and um, I, I I think he introduced me to Scott McKnight. And I pulled out one of my uh, little business cards from a podcast. It's like, hey, I'd love to have you on the podcast sometime. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Uh, I didn't Scott tell him that Scott's he had already man. turned me down only because he was too busy. I I was last year. I did a series on the New Testament. Yeah. And so I ended up getting Rafael Rodriguez to do Romans with mm -hmm. me, which was a delight. Rafael's a, Rafael's a friend. I uh, mm -hmm. got to run, in, run into him at SBL also. But um, now that now that I've got you and the special connection <laughs> with Scott McKnight, maybe I can uh, maybe maybe I can get him on now and just, you know, pull an extra little plug. Like, well, I mean, you've had most of us from Northern. Uh, you've right. had Lynn. You've yeah. had Lynn. You've had DJ. Yeah. And so now I'm just going to be like, Scott, uh, all the New Testament folks, all the all the folks, Kevin's had them but you. 
Um, and so, if, you know, like, like Pokemon, you got to collect them all. So at, <laughs> at that point, at that point, you have to go on Kevin's podcast. Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Anything I can do to, um, to get these guys to, to listen and to talk to me, <laughs> I'll be happy to do it. I'll be happy to do it. You know, we talked about campus, uh, in March of 2020 being a bit of a ghost town. That is definitely not the case these days. Do you like that segue there? That, that is not great. the that case. Super these professional. Days. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, that's why I'm a podcast host. <laughs> you know, because uh, that and because nobody was inviting me on their podcast. So I figured. Uh, I mean, I did the same thing a couple of years ago. So I get it. <laughs> <laughs> but campus, Asbury Seminary campus and Asbury University campus are packed these days because of what a lot of people are terming the Asbury revival of 2023. Mm -hmm. There's a. Uh, after we finish our conversation, I'll have um, I'll go back and re pre-record some yeah. other material, just kind of setting context for everything and looking at some other things that mm -hmm. you know, Joy has said and uh, Tim Tennant, president mm -hmm. of Asbury Seminary, and a handful of other folks as well. But uh, Tom, that's kind of what has prompted me to ask you to tell me a little yeah. bit about your research mm -hmm. and why that actually I think qualifies you to put a critical eye on what is happening there critical not in the sense right of criticizing but critical in the sense of discerning and so tell us where you're at these days what you're doing you mentioned northern yeah. seminary tell us a little bit about your research and then we'll uh, i'd love to hear you kind of walk us through what is actually happening based on what mm -hmm. you can see there at asbury university in the bustling metropolis of wilmore kentucky all the all two stoplights. Indeed. Um, I uh, So what I'm doing these days, uh, I am um, amongst the, the faculty, I have a kind of a split faculty staff role at um, at Northern Seminary in Lyle, uh, in Chicago, the Chicago area, um, on, on amongst, uh, you know, the greats. Uh, their New Testament department is uh, Scott McKnight, Lynn Kohig, Nijay Gupta, and myself. So uh, one of these is not like the other. Um, <laughs> That's a pretty stacked, stacked department yeah, there. It is. It is. Uh, it's been a joy to be amongst that community. Um, but uh, I serve as the director of library services and education technology. Um, and so I help equip and resource our students with research and reading and training, you know, like training and learning how to, to do the, the craft of research. Yeah. Um, and then I also teach a couple courses. Um, I, I'm teaching Greek this next semester for our students. And uh, uh, Scott was generous enough to hand me his his annual uh, Greece and Turkey trip for the time being. And so oh, uh, man. Uh, I'm suffering for Jesus uh, going <laughs> over uh, each summer now uh, to, uh, to take students uh, through kind of the journeys of Paul. So man, that is rough. Yeah, yeah. It's just a, you know, <laughs> Um, so, so I'm, I'm doing that uh, at Northern uh, as well. I've just accepted uh, an interim director role with Seminary Now, okay. um, which is a, a kind of a media wing of Northern. Uh, it's a Bible study uh, book resources kind of streaming service. Yeah. Um, and they're a lot, they have a new kind of exciting initiative that's not public yet, but um, um, that I'm that I'm spearheading. And so cool. uh, I'm, I'm excited to talk about that sometime. We'll just dangle so, that little carrot there yeah, yeah, and let absolutely. people know, hey, go check out Seminary Now. They've got good stuff there. They do. They do. Yeah. 
So I, uh, so that's what I'm doing. I actually still live in the Lexington area. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm 15 minutes up the road uh, from Wilmore. My local church is there in the Wilmore area, a Great Commission Fellowship, which is a, a vineyard community. Um, and yeah, so that's where I'm at. Um, Scott McKnight, kind of the bridge here, Scott McKnight was the, the uh, examiner for my doctoral dissertation, uh, much like Lacona was for yourself. Yeah. And um so my my dissertation was on um, the the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Luke, in Luke Acts, mm -hmm. and uh, putting that in historical perspective. Um, and so one of the things that uh, in our field of New Testament studies, uh, anybody that's kind of paid attention to Luke and pneumatology for the last fifty years or so. Um, the uh, the conversation in academia has stagnated. It was a debate between um, James Dunn, a wonderful, wonderful New Testament scholar, um, who um, who articulated a vision or understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as conversion initiation. Okay, and so for him, the language that he would use is um, that when Luke talks about baptism of the of the Spirit, um, he's talking about conversion okay okay yeah um and then and with you know and uh, uh, thus associated with water baptism and and it carried a bunch of baggage baggage right and so in some sense it was taking a pauline understanding some of his critics uh would articulate it as it was taking a pauline understanding of the baptism of the holy spirit and reading it into luke yeah um yeah. and then you have uh folks in kind of the wesleyan holiness tradition you know there's a stream coming out of that obviously starting with um not starting but really championed by fletcher um which was uh wesley's right hand man that suggested that no um the baptism of the holy spirit isn't necessarily talking about conversion but it's talking about the some the some other experience right um Within Pentecostal circles, they would argue uh, articulate that as um, as like a second work of grace. They would use the language of like they as this baptism of the Holy Spirit as this like second thing that 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 Jesus does on the other side of conversion. Okay, um, folks in the uh, so that's one so, so one group would articulate it that way. Um, other folks would say that it's um, that it is. I totally lost my train of thought. I apologize. Uh, it's been a no, long week of of well, very little sleep. So, right. um, and we'll and we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so some folks uh, in Pentecostal circles would argue that it's second work of grace. Um, some folks would say that it's it's um, it's focusing on the divine encounter with the Spirit. Um, mm -hmm. And so, a lot of folks um, in kind of the the historic kind of revival tradition um, kind of hearken to this, right? Of the yeah. saying that like the 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 spirit of the Lord is here present tangibly amongst us, mm -hmm. right? And doing things. Um, and so, uh, and so Dunn spent a good 40 years arguing with various charismatic and Pentecostal um, scholars as to like what exactly this baptism of the Holy Spirit thing is. Yeah. Right. Um, so fast forward um, the last 10 years, the conversation has largely stagnated. Um, there's been a couple contributions from um, Aaron Kecker had a wonderful dissertation um, to this end. Um, and he talked about, uh, he used some interdisciplinary approaches to talk about uh, intergroup reconciliation. And so he looked at, um, he looked at the vision of 
of what's presented and what the spirit is doing in the book of Acts, and then showed that wherever the, the, the spirit baptism language and all that, whenever that language begins to pop up, it's always in this kind of reconciling function, bringing and you creating a new corporate identity, right? Um, yeah. out of out of all these different ethnic groups. And so kind of the in-group, out-group, uh, what he, the language he uses, allocentric identity. Okay. So um, I hope I'm not getting too technical on this. No, but, so, uh, but to, to like to make it practical just for a sec, I, I think folks who are familiar with it, like the first big three noticeable, you know, either outpourings of the Holy Spirit or you know, like when the Holy Spirit seems to show up and to bring outside folks in, Acts chapter two, people are brought in in mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. droves, uh, and that really kind of continues on through chapter four, yeah. and then Acts chapter eight, <clears throat> Peter and John go up to Samaria, who to believers who have not yet received the Holy Spirit in mm -hmm. in any obvious sense or at least mm -hmm. in a sense obvious to them, so they lay their hands on them, and now Samaritan believers are brought in, mm -hmm. and then Cornelius in Acts ten. And similar kind of thing where an uncircumcised Gentile mm -hmm. is brought in and then is brought in. And then Peter is the one who's kind of like, oh, well, uh, I guess we need to I guess we need to get these guys in the water. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah that, no. that, that, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I can see that. So uh, so uh, Aaron contributed and one, one of his big contributions to the conversation was saying, hey, let's look at other disciplines and seeing what interdisciplinary work can be done. Um, David McCullough did a uh, did um, kind of an expansion on a lot of what Dunn was doing, but he tried to bridge it using some narrative, like narrative reading techniques. Okay. Um, and a lot of there's a lot of good to be found in David McCullough's Ritual Water, Ritual Spirit book. Um, but he ran into the same pitfalls that Dunn inevitably ran into. Okay. Um, so I say all that to say, so one of the things that I did was um, I wanted to begin to talk about uh we've had uh, some opportunities within our biblical studies field to begin to do social scientific investigation mm -hmm. stuff. Um, and it, and it allows us to begin to compare data, data sets um, for um, between like historical accounts and stuff like that. Um, and re realistically with the book of acts, we have a, a, a historical artifact, right? Yeah. Um, Access history. And I know that you have talked about that on the podcast on yep. at various, various points. Um, and so uh, it is the remnant of a historical witness. And actually, when you look at revivals, like what the remnant of revivals are these oral accounts of what God did in their midst, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I did with my dissertation was um, I kind of articulated kind of a robust vision of what, um, of historical comparative methodology. And then I looked at the book of Acts. I looked at, um, the five accounts, the five outpourings, as I would articulate it, which is, um, so I did a, some linguistic work to actually, because part of the, what uh, one of the things I observed was that inevitably, baptism of the Holy Spirit became this like Rorschach test for yeah. no, no, no matter what interpreter was doing it. And what they would do is they would say, this is what baptism of the Holy Spirit is. So these are the things that I'm going to look at, right? So yeah. for Pentecostals, and, it, and the irony is that Luke's, accounts can't be totalized and all the accounts cause somebody problems it doesn't matter if you're pentecostal it doesn't <laughs> matter if you're um if you're kind of a more of like a ritual uh water baptism or like a dunian conversion initiation everybody ends up having problems when they begin to try to systematize acts um and 
what they would run into is, for example, um, the, and so we even had this problem then of like trying to figure out what sphere baptism was. Mm-hmm. And so I went to phenomenology uh, as a discipline to t- begin to talk about like, um, you know, a great example of this is a phenomenologist cube. And when you would pick up a cube, I don't have one, mm-hmm. I can use my phone. So if you had this object and you were asked to describe it, you know, phenomenology is talking about religious experience. Yeah. You, you're going to, you're observing this thing. And so you're going to talk about edges and you're going to talk about faces and you're going to talk about angles, right? Okay. But then if I asked you to describe the same thing, you're going to have your own take on it because you're describing the same thing, but you're seeing, in a sense, a different perspective of yeah. it, right? And so it's this articulation of religious experience and how we navigate that. And, and there's, in some sense, we get a lot of, we get a lot of people reading into the shape of what they think it should be. And so what ended up happening was in this debate, it was really fascinating because for Dunn, it was conversion initiation. And so he looked at the outpouring events. And one, one thing that Dunn saw was that the, um, he was like, Acts four doesn't count. He didn't even treat Acts four in his dissertation because he said, It's a different type of thing because conversion's not happening there. Nobody's being converted, so it can't be spirit baptism. Yeah. And he done just went on. Um, And so one of uh, Irvin, uh, Howard Irvin, uh, Pentecostal scholar, pushed back on this and said, you know, what do you mean about four? And and, and and then, you know, done in an exchange, they had, and Irvin's like, fine, we're not going to deal with four. And and, and Howard Irvin just moved on and conceded the territory. Yeah. And that was in the early 80s. Uh, uh, and then Stronstad jumped in the argument. No one ever went back to Acts four. So part of my work was saying, uh, "Hey guys, can we can we talk about this this passage? Who linguistically, um, lexically, it it ticks all of the boxes all the way down. It uses all the same language. It has the same summary statement. Um, it is the it is the tightest resummation of Acts one eight in the entire book." Um, of what happened when the spirit came upon them, um, proclaiming the word with boldness. And as you know, the hand of God, uh, 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 you know, as the, as God extended his hand in healing. And so it, it was, it's fascinating because um, the conversation was so loaded with presuppositions. Right. Right. And so it was trying to, for us trying, me trying to get back to the text, me trying to say, what does the text say? And from like a linguistic standpoint, uh, we have this language uh, and the other pushback I had, the other one of the other insights I had that was fairly original to my work was that when you begin to talk about spirit baptism, it's fascinating because that's not Luke's language. That's a question I was about to ask is, yeah, yeah. You've, you've periodically referred to baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I was going to ask, talk to me about yeah, is that even biblical language for what's going on? So, here? so that what's fascinating is is that um, that whenever Luke uses the language of baptism of the Holy Spirit, he uses it never uses the word baptizing. Like whenever mm-hmm. the Spirit is acting, it's never baptizing anybody. Right. Which is filling, right? It's filling. Uh, receiving is the main word there. Okay. Uh, uh, filling is there a present as well, but receiving is Luke's primary term. Okay. The only time you get baptism of the Holy Spirit language in Luke Acts, and this is super fascinating, it's on Jesus's lips when Jesus is comparing what he's about to do to John's uh, water ministry. And Luke 3? Yeah. So it's the <laughs> it's always the immediate context. Yeah. So it's it's Luke 3, 
Yeah. And then Jesus again reiterates that in relationship to John. John did this. I'm going to do this. Right. right. So yeah. baptism of the Holy Spirit is only being invoked when water baptism is in the immediate literary context or somebody's quoting Jesus later. Right. And so even, in, so even in Acts 19, sorry to interrupt, even in yeah, Acts 19, yeah. when Paul meets John, uh, disciples of John. Yeah, the um, Tenna disciples, like the some kind of disciples. Right, of John, yeah, right? some kind of yeah. disciples. He, um, yeah, that's all, that's all Luke says, just found some disciples. Mm -hmm. like, uh, they're like, Paul's like, hey, have uh, did y'all receive the Holy Spirit? And they're like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> right, right, and right. And Paul's like, okay, wait a second here. All right, so <laughs> tell me about y'all's baptism. And then they're like, oh, John. And so Paul basically goes through the whole thing and explains, all right, well, here's what John was doing. Yep. Um, here's what Jesus was doing. And then they're baptized in Jesus' name. And then Paul lays his hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Right, right. And then they begin prophesying. And, you know, the, those yeah. other things that uh, that's, uh, some groups of Christians don't necessarily want to talk about. Um, but the reality is, is that what you end up having is... Um, that's not Luke's chosen language. His, his Luke's chosen language is spirit reception, mm -hmm. um, and which is which is what um, which is the language that I chose. So when in my dissertation title, like it's I'm talking about spirit reception because that's Luke's language. Um, and so even when we've talked about like baptism in the Holy Spirit, we've we've um, we've we've filled it with our own meaning, right? Yeah. Um, one of the other fascinating insights that I pointed out, and it's not original to me, but it's something that we need to pay attention to, is all of these accounts are corporate fillings. All of them. Right. Luke, it's, it's Luke never not just narrates. just one single person. Right. Luke never narrates an individual filling. This doesn't mean that individual, individual, like it's not particular, and that individuals aren't necessarily filled or however you want to articulate that. But like even in the instance of Paul, like the immediate counterexample would be like, oh, well, what about Paul, right? Um there's a promise that Paul will be fulfilled. He'll be healed and filled. He'll receive the spirit. When Luke narrates it, he only narrates the healing. He never narrates the filling, where in all these other encounters, he narrates filling. Is there meaning to that? Probably not. But it's interesting that when Luke wants to narrate the filling, it's always this corporate experience. It's always this corporate event. Mm -hmm. um, so that was my work on Luke Acts. And so I came away with Luke Acts um, saying that like, um, I wanted to do kind of a, a social thick description. And so um, I, in each of these instances in the accounts of Acts, I looked at the contextual, the religious geographic contextual setting yeah. of this event and the precursors that led up to it. But then I looked at the phenomenology of the event itself. So um, what was happening on the ground, what was being described in the account? Um, were, you know, like, what can we summarize, uh, assume from the context that, you know, the things that are going on within the account, just simply by how the other characters in the account are acting, as well as the things that are like blatantly identified, like bold preaching, uh, prophetic words, tongues, um, whatever those things, those phenomenological things are. Um, yeah. And and what well, I can even, even with, down to like flames of fire, like right. you, would, you would describe yeah. that, yeah. right? Because that's very clear in Acts 2. Yeah physical manifestations and yeah. so for example um they've broke down into like three general categories one was proclamation and so proclamation fits anything from the preaching action that is happening to also kind of the prophetic utterances and the responses to the spirit tongues would fit into this glorifying god right because that's articulated in acts 2 yep. that that's what that's what's going on and so there's this proclamation element to it this worship and a witness 
that's happening in the proclamation piece. Mm -hmm. There's a power piece here that mm -hmm. you also have these uh, miraculous, uh, uh, you know, manifestations of power. Um, sometimes, you know, like in the Acts 4 instance, they're talking about like God extending his hand and healing, right? Yeah. Um, and But there are other kind of like seemingly manifestations and responses to God's power and in, in how people are responding. And pe the crowds and folks seeing it and seeing that like something is going on with them, right? Uh, and then so then that's the second piece. And then the third piece is um, presence. So there's like there's these these manifestations of God's physical presence that occasionally show up in some of the accounts, not in all the accounts and not all the things are in all the accounts. And that's the point. Right. It's this constellation of data points so that when, when we begin to describe this, we can gather all of the constellation of data and saying like, um, you know, to, to use this example, looking at it from this angle, sometimes I'll have these data points, but sometimes when you rotate it, you get these other data points. Yeah. These other data points aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. It's just sometimes that's not what's being highlighted or seen in that. Yeah, context. there's there's moments of overlap. Yes. In yes. each of the each of the three examples that I just mentioned earlier, X2, X8 and X10. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but if you're looking for, you know, items A through E or one through five in all three instances, yeah. yeah so, Sorry, man, so God doesn't always work that way. The the historic the the, the classic theological example is that uh, Pentecostals had a problem with tongues because uh, tongues is in a lot of the accounts. It's actually in four. Uh, it's in three three of the five accounts. Um, the uh, uh, water baptism isn't in all the accounts. It's in a lot of the accounts. So when you talk about the order of things, oftentimes it follows the Acts 238 formula. Hey, right? now you're belief, speaking my language, man. Yep. Yep. <laughs> belief plus baptism. Belief plus belief, baptism. baptism? Uh, water baptism, reception of the Holy Spirit, right? And yep. so sometimes it follows that order, mm -hmm. but sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes there seems to be a gap where yeah. there's belief and there's been water baptism. They didn't receive the Spirit, right? Acts 8. Yeah. Yep, Acts 8. And so, um, so, uh, depending on your camp, you end up having these problems. And so Dunn was was defending a like a high view of 238. And what I mean by like not a high view, that's not the right language, but a, a like a very strict ordering view of yeah. 238, um, such that A plus B equals C, this kind of formulaic understanding right. of, of spirit reception. Historically, um, that is where uh, folks within churches of christ and, and i'll i'll also mention as well folks generally within that american restoration movement uh, also known as stone campbell movement so yep. in your part yep. of the world a lot of independent christian churches yep. up there johnson university i mentioned rafael rodriguez earlier mm -hmm. johnson university mm -hmm. in knoxville lexington theological seminary has uh, affiliation with disciples i think mm -hmm. disciples of christ mm -hmm. uh southland big mega church in mm -hmm. uh, lexington area those uh, groups as well as my own would all look at Acts 238 and say, yeah, this is programmatic. So yeah, right. it's we, programmatic. We would yeah, be, that's exactly right. We yep. would be there with Dunian historically. Yep. 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 The problem is, is that uh if that's the case, then Acts 8 presents a riddle. Oh, and chapter 10. Yeah. And, yep. yeah, because, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it breaks the yeah. order, right? Um yeah. but even but even more than that, Acts 4 is a problem for you as well. Because there's no conversion there. There's people who've already received the spirit that received the spirit again. And 
Because all is, in that space receive the spirit. That's I also re- problematic. <laughs> I remember when I first encountered that, I was at, like, when I first really started asking that question, I was like, what's going on here? I asked a, 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 a friend who will remain nameless. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I asked mm-hmm. a friend from Churches of Christ who uh, wrote his dissertation at Asbury and had some rather extraordinary experiences occur to him during his time immediately after Asbury was like, what's what's going on here? The way he explained it to me was at least like, all right, or at least I here's how I pitched it to him. And he, he felt like it made some sense. You've got X, X amount of Holy Spirit that you can withhold based on your sanctification i don't know and then like you can just grow in your capacity to receive more and more of the spirit that's how it made sense to me i could be way off there but i'm trying to make sense of acts four because you're right conversion's not not it's not even in the it's not even in the picture and so what's fascinating to me so what you would what you would what you kind of articulated there is what witherington would call the leaky the leaky vessel model um (laughs) Where has a way with words. Yeah, where where he would say, We're not leaky vessels. Yeah. Um, we don't lose the spirit, or we don't like we don't find ourselves in lack, right? And so his critique of that is is that. Um, and so there's a little bit of that there, but I think that your your language of expansion, I think, is is closer if yeah. you're using like a, a like a, a vessel holding. Um the language I that I like to I wouldn't say that I had perceived it at least as losing the spirit but just however much volume if you want to talk about in terms of volume at at, at the risk of being crass you want to talk about in terms of volume like however much i'm able to receive the spirit that is what i have in that Mm -hmm. moment being aware that i can quench the spirit but in these outpourings like we see in acts four my capacity expands that's usually how I've how I've so let me let me started to view it, but let but me affirm work, let me affirm work through like that. I think we're close because what I would say is I would articulate it just a little bit differently. Sure, and I think your your audience may re- hear this a little bit, uh, may receive this a little bit better. Okay, is that I think it's less about, I think it's less about us being expanded in our like vessel ship, whatever that means, right? Yeah. And and it's more about um, it's not how much more of the spirit we're getting, it's how much more of the spirit is getting us. So I think it's I okay. think it's an I, issue yeah, I think of, I see that. of 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 how much more obedient and responsive we are to what the spirit's doing, mm-hmm. right? As 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 a partner, right? In in new life, right? And in rejuvenation, and in all of these things. Yeah. And so the Lord always wants to do things like healing and to move, you know, like through giftings and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But sometimes like there's an obedience piece of that as well. Um, yeah. That. And so if you want to use the language of like, we have an increased capacity to listen and respond to the spirit. I'm all on board for that. Yeah. And I, I'd affirm that. Yeah. yeah. I would affirm that. Yeah. The, the issue so, of re- reception to me, at least has, just has naturally lent itself to, to vessel language stood as a, yeah. a capacity to to hold a, a volume of so can i something can I... but your nuance makes sense and it, it especially like how you know not so much of what we get but how much the spirit gets us yeah that i'm i'm there All and right. so lexically can i push you on this 
Um, I, so I mean, to, if you have to, like, I'm the, I'm the host here. I'm supposed to be asking the questions, but you go so, ahead. <laughs> so, um, so to take or receive, obviously, is generally the verb that we're talking about, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And um, it's also often used in, like, it's to receive something. It's not only receiving, like, a physical gift, but to receive people. Like, oh, there's a sense, sense of, of welcoming. Like welcoming? Yeah. And so, wow, okay. And so, there's, so it's a fascinating, so it has kind of, so when you talk about lexical ranges, right? Like, yeah. that's on the edge. But it's fascinating to reflect on this vision of receiving God's presence in our midst. And when you go back and look at each of those accounts, mm-hmm. right, there's a sense in which God's tangible presence is articulated that folks like God is here in our midst. Yeah. And so, you know, whether you want to use language of like holy, like sacred space or whatever, like there is that sense of like, of locality and presence. Right. And so this is, um, so it was, it was in some of this, these explorations and and discoveries of these, the biblical texts that I went, well, let's do some historical comparative work. That's, that's where the real meat well, like when I yeah. think of your dissertation, yep. that's yeah. what I think of is, all right, let's take what we've got in Acts. Let's take what we see here. Yep. Yep. How does that, how, how do other accounts, and we'll even say alleged, just because we're yeah, looking sure, at these sure. critically yep. in a sense of yep. discerning. Yep. Yep. Let's take these alleged either outpourings or receptions or whatever you want to call them yep. from different points in history, geographically culturally diverse mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and uh and chronologically diverse i mean you you span a couple centuries of no no so so okay. let me okay. let me jump in so yeah i actually kept it tight okay. um because it had to do with when you do comparative work you want the best data possible mm-hmm. um and so what i wanted was i kept it within the 20th century because okay. that yeah. gave me the best sources okay? yeah that's fair but what i intentionally did was I moved away from like the, my methodology could be repeated in any like with any number of revivals, right? Yeah. Um, in any any like groups of data sets, and that's what. So what that's one of the things that I was doing was I was exploring these various data sets, um, and so I took Luke Acts as a data set of a remnant of this ongoing outpouring of the Spirit. As an aside, let me just say what we have in the Luke Acts data set. It, data sets of kind of these uh, of the this out this spirit revivifying work when you look across all of them one of the fascinating things that you see is that none of the groups there are truly outsiders to judaism yeah all of them are believers <laughs> of some sort yeah. so for example you have diaspora and jerusalem jews in mm-hmm. two and four you have samaria which is a judaism adjacent group they're jewish well, they venerate Yahweh. Like they yeah. do. They just yeah. they have they have different. There's a hyphen between Jew and Ish there. Yeah. Yes. They're yes, not Jewish. Indeed. They're Jewish. Ish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But 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 they venerate Yahweh. They yeah, believe, right. so if you want to talk about language of belief, they, they believe have in Yahweh. Yeah. They have their Torah. They have their. They have some differences. But um, it might be the uh, like some the equivalent would be like a denominational difference, like the, yeah. and, and even a wide denominational difference, like. Eastern or Orthodox and renewal, you know, like it could be that big of a gap. And yeah, <laughs> Orthodox church versus, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Who like have a Bible a very church similar, Yeah. They have a very similar scripture, but a very different one, you know, because they're dealing off from the Septuagint. And so there was a lot of their Old Testament is, is sure. similar, but different, right? Sure. Um, 
so you have a you have a Judaism adjacent group who are Yahweh believers. Yeah. You have Cornelius's house, which are generally acknowledged as the Gentiles, but they were God fearers. Right. They were they were likely attending synagogue. They believed in Yahweh. They just didn't want to go all the way because it would have involved male circumcision. Yeah, that's uh Yeah, like adult male circumcision. Right. And they're like, yep. wait, so in order to be part of the people of God, we have to like cut. And they're like, nah, like we'll hang out here. And, and just watch and participate but like we don't there's need money for your, your synagogue you know <laughs> right, yeah, like right, that kind of right. stuff. Yeah. but but they were believers right like that was a piece of this um and actually in that account of acts 10 cornelius comes off as more faithful than peter like he's immediately like i'm in i understand what's going on here jesus like like yeah like uh, I will send I will do exactly what you said and then we go to Peter and Peter's like I don't yeah. know Lord I surely not I I'm not gonna eat yeah. this I'm not like, gonna eat this Pete, pig Peter's in Peter's here. up on a roof having visions about food during prayer time like yeah. we all know this right and he's like I don't know about this so that's your Acts 10 and then you have um, Acts 19 which you have disciples of John so these are believers as well Sure. No one is new to, to Judaism in that sense here. Right. Yeah. So this is revivifying work of God's people, mm-hmm. variously defined. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that I would say. So as we begin to do this comparative work, one of the things that I pulled up was I wanted to explore like how, what are, like when you begin to look at the phenomenologist cube, I had all these data points, you know, like looking at, on the side. What are, what are the best comparative events that we can begin to to look at mm-hmm. to even compare? Because everybody's variously contending what sphere of baptism is, and the closest map to this are historical revival events. Yeah. Um. You they they are corporate in nature. Mm-hmm. They are in te- they are like they are almost uniformly interpreted through the lens of Acts two, which is fascinating. This isn't just charismatic revival events. Yeah. Um, and that's what I wanted to focus on. So in my dissertation, I didn't look at things like Azusa Street. I could have. Right. But the reality is, is that came with its own baggage. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to look at these the, these revival events that were happening in um, spaces that would be considered more traditional, more mainline, um, or or ethnically isolated from a lot of those other kind of cultural factors. Um, I wanted geographically diverse. I wanted the best resources or, you know, the best uh, things I could have. And I wanted, uh, honestly, I wanted revivals that were, that, that didn't look like each other. Right. Um, And so I dug into, so I had this Acts data set. And then I said, let's compare the similarities and differences, the continuity and discontinuity that we see within this data set. And then let's look at these other data sets and see if they share the same range yeah. of continuity and discontinuity within those data sets. So, because too often we want to say in the Acts accounts, the normal experience is X, and the exception here is Acts 8. The exception here, the weird one, is Acts 10. It's weird because there's no tongues. It's weird because there's a delay. It's weird because blah, blah, blah. And so we explain away accounts without actually taking those accounts seriously in the range of experience. Mm-hmm. And so then what I wanted to do was look at the other revival. And so I looked at the Welsh revival at the turn of the 20th century, okay. um, which, which, which preceded um, Azusa Street. 
Um, I um, and it was happening in kind of mainline churches there in um, in Wales. Um, I looked at the um, I looked at the East African revival in um, in a, a constellation of na uh, nations there in East Africa, which was very um, it had it, it was very different, and it spanned like I know this, the, people have been asking this about Asbury, like how long can this last? And I was like, well. <laughs> um the east african revival by all accounts lasted 40 to 50 years wow yeah. as it jumped around right mm -hmm. but like but but it was this commitment to revival and this commitment to pursuing the spirit of god and his presence and and it and so like most people would look at the east african revival and go like this doesn't count because it doesn't look like the others and so i was like cool i want that in my data set like i want yeah. to look at that and, and to what degree does that range of experience that's reported there have continuity and discontinuity? Mm -hmm. um, and so Welsh Revival, East African Revival, um, some of the original research I did was the book, uh, the, the, the Dioc Revival, the People Revival in Borneo. Yeah, um, yeah. My, my reader on my dissertation was Sue Russell. Sue was a, uh, is a, uh, she's a double PhD in anthropology and in biblical studies. She's a um, stud. She's, like she is amazing. Just she is amazing. Her her story about how she wanted to do this kind of research and I like she was being told like ah you can't you, yeah, yeah. you haven't done any formal work in this field of anthropology. Well no, no, it's biblical studies. So was she was in anthropology studies. and she yeah. was trying to speak into these like inter interdisciplinary work, like the type yeah. of thing that I'm doing. And they're like, You can't play here because you don't have a biblical studies degree. And she's like, like awesome, I'll go okay. get one. And she got I'll, another PhD. I'll go do that then. <laughs> <laughs> and then she came back and she's yeah. like are you ready to listen now here we go um yeah no it's so good it's so good so uh um so i had her as a reader so she served in borneo in the 80s uh doing some translation work and so she was there in the wake of this revival um and she um so she had firsthand experience with a lot of these communities that had been revived and and largely the story of the diac revival has not been told Mm -hmm. like not significant of the Tagal people, right? Um, it has just not been told well. There's a hand, there's two or three books from missionaries that were over there. But the key is, is the reason why is that we didn't have, there weren't missionaries there. It was second generation Christians. Oh, wow. Like indigenous second generation Christians yeah. um, that the Lord's spirit fell upon. It was, we didn't have like Western witnesses there for it. And so right. um, uh uh, so a missionary that had been working in the area came back years later and did some work and got to see the tail end of it. Mm -hmm. um, but what's fascinating is that largely their story hasn't been told by academia. And so that's what I wanted to do was, so I did um, some interviews with Sue and her experiences and the data that she had gathered, um, as well as like used all the written resources and, you know, oral accounts that I could find, yeah. right? Because she was familiar with all of those things yeah. and wanted to bring that into my dissertation as a comparative event. Um, and again, it's like their story is amazing because like the spirit falls on their young people and they're like worshiping in the chapel. The elders have no idea what this is because they don't have cultural, they don't have like a cultural script for a revival like America does. They don't have this, this vision of, of how to interpret this. And so they begin digging through the scriptures because it has to be in the Bible, sure. right? And they come upon Acts 2 and they're like, hey, that's what this is. Hey, this, is yeah. this is the outpouring of God's spirit, you know, yeah. and that's how they interpret it. And it just sweeps through and it transforms uh, the region. It's just, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they have some really fascinating, like, you know, when I, when I view it through this lens of 
power, uh, like um, like proclamation, presence, and uh, uh, proclamation, presence, and uh, and and power. Um, they had some really fascinating um, physical manifestations of God's presence yeah. that um, that we don't see anywhere else. And what what I ended up finding was that oftentimes when we have these like physical manifestations of God's presence, they have meaning in those contexts to those people. And so, like in general, I've been a critic of like gold angel dust like experiences that people have in charismatic. Context. I was literally just thinking that yeah. okay, for people so, who aren't aware of what's happening in <clears throat> in certain circles, certain church circles today, right? Um, it, some yeah. have reported uh, you being being either either filled with the spirit or or so moved by the spirit that yeah. they they look down it and they they have a vision of what is essentially like gold dust well so let me hands. let me clarify it let me clarify it a little bit yeah. it's it's actually associated with anointing so okay. winds the spirit falls on people and they're anointed to do like for certain tasks of ministry are laying hands and imparting you know like activating gifts and stuff like that it's associated they there's often this this gold dust it's not something physical it's not something they can wipe yeah. off it, right? it's like a visionary experience yeah. almost. it's like a visionary experience uh, of like of an unveiling maybe is the language we might use That's of true. of like seeing seeing what god is doing in this tangible way through gold dust and so like it was funny i went into this dissertation like wanting to deal with evidence and just hating this manifestation that I, I would hear reports of. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. It's, yeah. it's hokey. And then I found myself getting through this dissertation and realizing like I was defending these physical, these, these manifestations, right. Of seeing this, this gold dust experience, because in these circles, it has this very particular meaning about God's presence and what God's doing in the moment. And I found myself defending this very unusual manifestation because the reality is, is that there is consistency as to how the the significance of that thing to what God's doing in those contexts and in those communities. At a um, at a very elementary level, uh, just a quick example. Yeah. Uh, and again, not not like I'll, I'll admit, right? Man, that's weird. Okay, I'll, I'll just say it. Yeah, like, that's no, weird. No. That's weird. Totally but at an yeah. elementary level, we we totally get this notion that God would, in some way, use a symbol that is relevant to people in their time. That's the whole reason why we talk about Jesus as a lamb of God. Right. Like, right. like that's just because it's meaningful to them in their exactly. Context. Yeah. So like yes. if yeah, it sounds like I yeah, man, it sounds weird. And a friend of mine <laughs> told me that it happened to him. And right. I I like every other instance where I can check this guy's work, he's generally reliable. But man, well, that's and, weird. Well, and that, and that was my thing, is that meaningful. I'm super critical of it. But this individual, uh, it's probably the same individual, had had reported this to me, and they're a reliable witness to me. And, you know, like, they're somebody who I trust. Yeah. They're, they're, they're yeah. as a trained observer, right? And so I was yeah. like, it's weird, but it has meaning in those contexts. And it actually fits in this category of, of the tongues of fire in Acts 2, of the shaking building in Acts 4. Those had cultural meaningful, like, they, those were culturally meaningful in those contexts, like how some of these things are in ours. Anyways, so um, the Dayak Rava had some really interesting stuff, yeah. and then um, and then the other one I did was the Asbury Revival, which is nineteen seventy, nineteen seventy, which fits yeah. this. The it fits into um, into this revival, but it fits into a very particular cultural context. And so I had 
Um, ultimately, like I had a, a uh, like a British context, right? Like a European British context. I did did an African context. I did like a South Pacific context, and I did an American context. And like the Asbury Arrivals fits in a very particularized context. It, it has its own religious scripts. It has its own cultural scripts, and. I wanted to see like how much does it relate meaningfully is there continuity and discontinuity and you know what i found is as i dug into it it was super super fascinating because um you know there was a, there's one great one divine moment is a great you know kind of summary of like of testimonies of what happened there mm-hmm. and but it's a polished account like it's an institutionally polished account of what happened there and so there's lots of like little nuggets like occasionally like some of the you know you talk about the category power like there's a handful of like healing accounts and stuff like that are associated with it Uh, but there's no real deliverance there was no you know some of those like uh more dramatic power encounters type things weren't present there at the same time I was writing this was the 50th, 50th anniversary of the 1970 outpouring. And so I attended those events and there was a bunch of, of invited to that were a bunch of graduates from, you know, from those classes that were sure. there during that original. One. Those so folks would do, still be around. Yeah. So I got to do interviews with them uh, and, and just, and just ask for their experiences, ask for their memories. What are some things that stood out to you? And I, I particularly, one of the questions I asked was, so tell me about um, deliverance. Did you ever see anything that you might classify as like exorcism or deliverance? And one of the old timers was like, oh, absolutely. He said, oh, it wasn't, it wasn't obvious. But what would happen is, is when people would start seemingly manifesting demons, they would be pulled off the side. And there was a room downstairs underneath Hughes where they would take them and do deliverance ministry yeah. and 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 pray over them and 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 see them free. And so what's fascinating is it's like so in the in the individual testimony, there there are these very clear experiences of, oh, there is this thing, and these things were happening, but it had been kind of glossed over and scrubbed from the larger, like, historic witness of the event. But I got bit, again, it goes back to, like, what are my best sources? And this yeah. is this was one of those where I, I could interview people and their experiences. Um, so super fascinating that it is it was very particular as a revival, and yet it matched the same range of continuity and discontinuity with some different emphases, emphases. Um, yeah. So it was, um, yeah, it was a fun dissertation, fun project. Yeah. So Tom, um, we had, uh, we, we had to hop off just for a sec with some yep. administrative things that happened and that's all right. Um, you had just wrapped up talking about how each of these experiences geographically diverse, but still pretty well represented with uh, eyewitness accounts and other other resources like that from the 20th century. Um, Basically, what you found in all of these, right, is that there's a range of uh, things that happen, really, Mm -hmm. to put it. The range of, the language I would use is the range of reported experience. Yeah, okay, that's a a great way to put it. The range, there's a range of reported experiences yeah. That gives us, you know, this um, this much, yeah. and there's overlap, mm-hmm. and it, what you've been saying, continuity and discontinuity within that range from from these uh, re- times of revival, apparent so, times of revival in the 20th century. Interestingly, and I didn't dig too much into this in my dissertation, but interestingly, a lot of the discontinuity was often around cultural expectations and cultural mm-hmm. scripts and so for example in the east african revival um 
the bodily nature of salvation was a huge piece of this. And okay. so bodily manifestations, shaking, dancing, all of those things were a big part of when the spirit would come. It like it it, it had a very clear um like it was it was it was um it was meaningfully represented in a bodily way in that culture and context because of the the cultural expectations around what salvation was, right? Yeah. So when you look at the Asbury revival, it was a very uh, like it, it, it ticked like the, the distinctives, um, had a lot of elements that resonated deeply with, um, the, the historic kind of American revival culture, mm -hmm. right. Of like, of what that ended up looking like. And some of the things that were a little bit more unusual, um, or there, there are aspects I say more unusual. That again, that's a cultural norm sure. expectation, right? Uh, there are elements that would get marginalized that were still there, you know, in the range of experience, but they would be less frequent or less common in those contexts. Yeah. Again, based on cultural scripts and expectations and, and stuff like that. So it's just a super fascinating um, range, and and um, and you know, one of the conclusions there is that in the range like in acts eight for example we can't we can't say that like it's the weird account right like the conclusion ironically there is that the delay there there's nothing remarkable about it like done money to make a huge deal about the delay the reality is is that sometimes we see that and it's not a question of did we do something wrong and so here's one of the interesting takeaways of this of a formulaic understanding, A plus B equals C. Mm -hmm. Water baptism, belief plus water baptism equals receiving the spirit. Yeah. That mechanical character, the narrative that that finds itself in where that pattern is first broken is in the context of Hellenistic magic. So the immediate count, so what happens is you get into this narrative about Acts 8 and the counter voice there is Simon. Right. This The sorcerer, who has this like Hellenistic under this magical understanding and he's observing this mm -hmm. and he sees the laying of a hands and he sees people begin to receive the spirit when they, their hands laid on them. And so clearly he's seeing either physical manifestations, there could be bodily shaking. It could be something vocalized, yeah. whatever it is, whatever the spirit's doing, he sees something and says, I want that. I want to be able to lay hands and do that. Yeah. Because in his mind, he sees this me mechanics, this, dare I say formulaic understanding of if you do this and you do this other thing it produces this guaranteed result that is actually the definition that's the that of 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 Hellenistic magic of if I say this incantation if I do this action then the spirits are forced to to respond in a certain right. way right and I would argue that what Luke is doing in Acts 8 is a counter narrative to understanding the reception of the spirit as magic in any mm -hmm. type of magical, dare I say, formulaic understanding. And that actually the spirit only comes by the sovereign act of God. Yeah. 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 And that does, that does challenge folks like myself and, um, and others who, who grew up looking to Acts chapter two as um as programmatic um uh, you know where that is that's the only way the way i explain this in uh, in church settings when it comes up is 
you know, we we see these things happen in Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, and... But let's know, not talk about Acts 4. Well, <laughs> right? <laughs> just by default. Um, yeah. Because usually the conversation surrounding us is... Uh, is but you're not wrong. ...to conversion. But, but, that, but that's my point, is that, like... Um, Historically, the biblical scholarship conversation has has migrated along the same path and ignored four. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry, I, I interrupted you. No, you're fine. You're fine. Um, but yeah, we we look at that and I'll say, look, like the the New Testament, right? It, it doesn't know an unbaptized Christian. And I right. think that right. I think you can make a pretty strong argument for that. Paul's discussion of uh, of water baptism in Romans six is it's just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And um, it, and and how he presents it, it, it is the means by which we participate in Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. Mm-hmm. Acts also shows us that God is going to do what God is going to do, <laughs> yep. and so we should yep. absolutely affirm the the importance of of water baptism. I mean, mm-hmm. no doubt about that. Yeah, and I, I think it's reasonable to expect that you know, sometime around then you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. But we'll also just know that God in his wisdom does what God is going to do. Yeah. And if it happens before, after, or in the process of, yep. that's a biblical perspective. That's tough for some people to follow. But I mean, we, but we it's like biblical. to pride ourselves. It's the biblical model, right? We like to pride ourselves on following the biblical model. And my point is the biblical model is clear on some things it's a little more open on other things we need to be willing to follow what we see in scripture and and i mean i think the text does generally say that the kind of if you, if you want to talk about a normative like the there's a difference between norm, normative or programmatic and normal the normal mm-hmm. sequencing is is belief plus water baptism and then after that, oftentimes you'll have the reception of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. What Acts 8 tells us is that sometimes in that formula, there can be a gap between A plus B and the equal sure. C part. Sure. Right? Yeah. Uh, Acts 8 says there can be a time gap there. Acts 10 says, yeah, the, the whole formula. Well, thing, we might like, need to move some things. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. Acts 10 says, yeah, your box is a formula. Um, it doesn't even have to follow this order. And God's going to do what God's going to do anyways. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, there's a lot of lessons to learn from the biblical text itself, as, as long as we're willing to allow the accounts, and we're listen, we're willing to listen to the accounts on their own terms. Yeah. Rather than filling those accounts with meaning and saying this is the weird one, this is the exceptional one, and these are the normal accounts. Yeah. I yeah. I think that's a good place for us to wrap up part one here, okay. which is let's let the bible lay it out for us mm-hmm. let's be careful about saying all right well it's always got to be it's always got to be here because these other two or three examples are all exceptions you get to the point where you end up having more exceptions than rules yeah yeah and that's a that's a tough spot to to be in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think if we if we allow ourselves to let the weight of the biblical model mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and all its variability yeah. actually impress upon us, then then I think we'll be in a good spot. Agreed. Agreed. Tom, 
Part one was a pleasure, sir. Looking forward to part two. It's a joy. We'll see you in a bit. Mm-hmm.